in three, two, one. This is Sam Soholt. I am a professional photographer and public land advocate, and you are listening to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, today, Nick and I are joined by the first guy since Mr. T to make a van cool again. Uh, you know, if you the the new Mr. T. Like in the in that movie's not even that new anymore. It's probably like almost ten years old. But uh, they had a Quentin. It's like that new movie, The Sandlot. (laughs) You know, you guys ever seen it? (laughs) Nick always makes me feel. uh, It reminds me of my age. But um, no, like the newer uh, A team that came out like ten years ago or something like that. Quentin Rampage Jackson was the new Mister T, and that was probably the coolest van I'd ever seen. It was like this old uh, GMC. What was their van? It wasn't the Astro. I think that was Chevy, but Chevy GMC, pretty much the same thing. But but um, that was a really cool van. But then this guy and his brother, uh, Sam Soholt, and Josh is your brother's name, correct? Yep. Yep. Josh Soholt. They took and flipped first a school bus, but now they've uh, they've consolidated space a little bit and gone down to a uh, van that would that would make Mister T drool. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> that we're, we're just lucky to have Mr. Sam Soholt here from public land teas on the Prairie Farm podcast. And, uh, the reason we have him on here is because Sam has pretty much his entire, at least this part of his career, we're going to find out more about his career and his background here in a second, but has, uh, worked very hard to, uh, raise his voice on conservation issues, um, public land, uh, access issues and uh you know basically just treasuring something that is very special should be special to all americans uh through our our public ground that we have here in our country but uh the van has been a key part of that right sam well it was important to have a billboard you know so it all started with a full-size school bus because you know what better you know then what a better way to get people's attention than a 36 foot piece of <laughs> uh original ugly uh, what if that, instead know, of a company truck kent we got you a company school bus how would you feel about that driving that to as long as you're as long as you're uh footing the uh bill for the, the for the gas on that, oh, all right. All right. <laughs> yeah i mean thank god i did that project originally in 2017 when diesel prices were you know yeah. under under three bucks <laughs> You know, driving it now, I, I, I'd make it, you know, I'd, I'd have to do like one trip a year and save up the rest of the year just to cover the <laughs> diesel to do it. <laughs> I've driven but yeah, my it last started, mile. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all started with the, with the bus um, and just using that as a billboard for public land uh, issues and raising awareness about public land legislation that was being passed and, and what people could do to speak up about it and against it and in favor of things that were actually beneficial to sportsmen and women. Uh, and then from that did a few years in the bus and then, yeah, Josh and I bought a, uh, 2010 Chevy express 3,500 and then proceeded to have a four wheel drive system put on it through Quigley four by four. And then, um, you know, big tires and roof rack and do all the, all the cool things, including a deck drawer system with a weapon slide sitting on top of that at a cargo glide, you know, with all the foam cutouts and stuff. So you just, you know, it was like the, it was like the hunter's version of the Batmobile. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it was just, <laughs> it's like yeah. men in black a, meets uh Batman or something like that. Dude. Yeah. When, when I saw it for the first time on uh, Instagram, I had the same feeling a like seven year old does when he sees those toy cars that are battery powered and you're like, mom, can we get it? She's like, no, that's real expensive. <laughs> Maybe if you're good for Christmas, but I had, like that same emotional response about your van. Uh, and I don't think I could be good enough for Christmas where my wife would be like, yep, yeah, we'll do one of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, it has been a very cool vehicle, um, to, to be able to use and like, again, using it as a focal point for, you know, to be able to push people to the platform to talk about yeah. bigger issues. You know, I obviously having a hunting van is a very cool thing to talk about and, and, uh, you know, fortunate that my brother and I got to do it together and he did a ton of the build on that one just because of COVID, it ended up, it was at parked out in Colorado. So during the lockdown, Josh was working on it. And then nice. I helped, you know, kind of finish it up and work with all the companies to get all the cool, you know, the solar panels and tires and the whole, you know, the whole works together. So, um, but yeah, it's been a very, very cool project. And we're always looking for creative ways to raise money for conservation. And that's kind of been the whole, like the whole mantra of public land tees is, forever conservation funding has been done kind of the same way when you look at like the uh the like the conservation organizations it's always been done the same way it's always banquets and and mm. dinners and raffles yep. and that kind of thing yep. yeah and it was you know in 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 this day and age being able to have these digital platforms it was a cool opportunity for us to come up with different ways to do it from that angle and then leverage those nonprofits uh to help match either match that funding or push the message or and then donate back to them uh for their missions cuz they're the ones that have boots on the ground every day yeah yeah well man you're uh you're getting into what I, I want to introduce here which is public land tees the business you started um how long has have you guys been running public land tees? Um, yeah. So, oh yeah. Sorry. Well, um, I, was I didn't mean say, to. I'm a I'm a fairly new hunter. I started hunting maybe back in 2015, 2016, something like that. And for as long as I, you know, have, and of course, when you're a brand new hunter, you don't you're not you're not like up and up on who's who in the industry. You're just trying to make sure you're pointing the gun in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. But once you once you uh, you know, have a couple of years settling in, you, um, uh, you start to, you know, look around who else is in this space, you know? And basically since I started doing that, I've been aware of public land tees. So when, when did the beginning really come together for public land tees? Yeah. So I bought the bus in 20, the uh, Jan or New Year's Eve, 2016. So okay. 2017 was the build year of the, of the bus. Um, and Josh and I kicked off. So basically I left, I finished the bus build in early August of 2017 and we launched public land tees later that week. And so it was like hand in hand. We did it at the same time as a way to, you know, we wanted to have the billboard of the bus and then a, a place to direct people to, to help raise funding for all of the organizations that were, you know, helping protect public sure. lands. That's so clever. Um, yeah. So just all like the timing of it all worked out. So we've been, it'll, you know, coming up on six years in business, um, on that front. And I should add it all up, but, um, we're close to a quarter million dollars raised, um, through all of the various uh, projects that we've wow. done and through t-shirt sales and, you know, the duck stamp project, all sorts of different things that we've done over the years. Um, we're close to a quarter million dollars given back to, uh, conservation initiatives, public land access, habitat funds, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And, 
and uh you know probably feels pretty good too you know just to go back to those early days and now you know this many years in look back and be like wow <laughs> all of this has been done in the in the name of conservation plus you know let's be honest it gives it it gives you some really fulfilling work to uh do you know i think uh people who start on like a really almost a passion project outset for their their career or whatever um like that's really what you're chasing you know is is you want to do something that makes a difference that you're good at that's fulfilling i mean do you feel like like that's happened for you through public land tees Absolutely. And I, th- I think the coolest thing about it was, you know, obviously when Josh and I started the business, it was with the mission to raise money, you know, but we didn't really know how, how well that would go. Uh, so the coolest thing, and I think the most fulfilling thing has been the response of all of the customers. I mean, without mm. the people who are visiting our website, buying our shirts, uh, responding to these initiatives that we put out there, like we couldn't do any of this. So like, we're right, not the right. heroes in this. We just get to be like, the voice from 50,000 feet talking about the issues, helping educate people on how all this works. Like, cause I was super naive about conservation funding, um, you know, going into this whole thing. I got to learn a lot, uh, all the little nuances of how this all worked and navigating, uh, nonprofits and, and, you know, a lot of them, it's like, they're very skeptical when you try to give them money for some reason, Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I think a lot of them get burned cause they, I think, uh, people, go out with a good intention they're like they want to donate money to an organization but they expect the organization to do all of the marketing mm-hmm. and that's not what about at all it was like no we have this platform we're raising money we're trying to do these things we just want help we just want a place to put all of these you yeah. know these this profit and so um that has been the coolest part is watching our customer base and the people that follow along with what we do like really drive it home and tell their friends about it and they share the link and it's like you know okay you got one buddy who went out and bought a shirt and got a free duck stamp well then they posted about it and then all of a sudden you got 10 more people that went out and did the same thing and so we can continue to raise more money so that's been fulfilling for both of us just watching the community kind of lift us up in the net if that makes sense yeah, yeah. yeah for sure no i think that's that's a very that's an excellent way to say it you know I've, i feel that way a lot of times I used to, so this is my second career. I used to be a uh, science teacher and I basically came to uh, Nicholas here begging for a job of any kind and uh, wanted to work in the conservation space. And, and, uh, but I think of that, you know, it's like, man, if we didn't have people who were willing to spend the money and sacrifice the acres and, and uh, have vision for, um, you know, a, a conservation ethic essentially as leopold would say i wouldn't have a job you know i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to do what i do every day that i love doing and and yeah it's a, it's good that it's good that you uh recognize that i think um you know a lot of people in the space probably kind of forget that but it's good to see that that you you consider that and I definitely appreciate that as a you know somebody who uh, would be a follower somebody who's you know part of the community more as a I guess on the consumer side or something like that, you know, it's, it's nice to see your perspective in that way. So yeah, that's, that's Absolutely. really cool. What's been, um, of the projects that your money, not your, but you know, the, the money from the organization that you start, uh, of those projects, what's been your favorite that you've seen the money go into? You know, there's, there's a few that I'd like to mention. Like we did one, uh, we donated, 
uh, $5,000 to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which was part of their Falls Creek project. Um, and so, you know, obviously our money wasn't a big, you know, chunk of what they total like raised in total, but they were able to buy a chunk of property. It was like 300 acres, um, that opened up better access, way better access. Like basically, um, if you wanted to go in at the land from the other side, it was like a long, long horse ride in to get to this big public swath. So it opened up 26,000 acres of public land to kind of the general public, um, which was a really cool project to be a part of. And I got to go out and, and hunt that, um, walk through that property that had been recently acquired and film some stuff for RMEF and hunt that property. And it was just like, it's one of the most beautiful valleys I've ever seen. And so, you know, that really sticks out, um, you know, above and beyond that, we did uh, the pollinator project last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we collaborated with Pheasants Forever and donated, ended up donating 360 uh, t-shirts to the organization for their um, pollinator kits. And so they did yeah. 300, 300 pollinator kits. So everybody got the public, the pollinator math tee uh, from us that went along with that. And then we donated another 60 shirts to all of the people involved with Pheasants Forever, so they could have their own, have their own shirt. Um, and so that was really cool because that, you know, that put out lots of habitat out all over the place, all over the country. Um, and then another big one that we have done now for four years is the Stamp It Forward project, which is a way to basically raise more money to buy federal duck stamps. And we ask for donations from individuals and companies. And then with 100% of the money we get, we buy duck stamps, which by law, 98% of that money has to go directly to wetland conservation, which is good for not only migratory bird species, but 700 species of plant animal life that rely on wetlands, not to mention uh, soil erosion and flood control and water quality and all, you know, basically everything that lives, you know, benefits from wetlands. So um, we, you know, last year alone, we were able to raise uh, $50,000 to buy 2,000 duck stamps wow. for the project. Really cool. So awesome. so in four years, in four years, we've raised just shy of $150,000 for um, wetland conservation, which has been, I mean, again, like the, the response um, by the companies who get involved in this and, and, you know, buy big swaths. I mean, Shields Outdoors bought $15,000 worth and, you know, wow. Savage and uh, on X. And I mean, it's, the list is, is endless yeah. of companies that have been willing to jump in. So it's, it's awesome to hear that because sometimes, I mean, you might wonder the same thing, uh, sometimes Sam, but, uh, but it's like, where do you get like, so we were at pheasant fest, right. And you hear about them hitting their, their goal with the, uh, call of the uplands was at mm-hmm. $500 million. You know, and then you hear numbers like what public land tees raising. And then, of course, you know, like every little county banquet or chapter banquet for NWTF and and other, you know, PF groups and QF groups. And, you know, then even some of the lesser known things like Trout Unlimited or not that they're small or anything like that, but like from the hunting perspective, I guess. But like there's so many of these organizations and and the people that belong to them keep digging deeper uh to come up with the funding and i think it's important that those people get recognition because it is no small amount not just those people but those companies um i'm always amazed that where do people come up with more money to give but they do and uh it's super humbling to to see people that are willing to do that well i don't think it's any secret that you know the hunting industry fishing industry it's a lot of money 
right? So it's a, it creates a lot of jobs. It's a lot of impact on the ground. It's yeah. a lot of impact on people's lives. And I think when companies are looking at donating, you know, whether it be for tax purposes or not, right? I think companies look at it as an investment in future customers. If there's yeah, ground that's protected, if there's more opportunity, more access, that means more people with boots on the ground. It means more people in sporting goods stores. It means more money raised for the Pittman-Robertson Fund. It means more shooting ranges. It means more hunter education. So I think they give so willingly to organizations like PF, like NWTF, whatever it may be. I think they give willingly because they know that that money is going to come back to them tenfold because if there is more opportunity for people to go out and recreate on these public lands, on private land, on the landscape that we all love and want to explore, they just, you know, it's, it's furthering the machine of both protecting habitat and wildlife as well as their business, which is, you know, why they started it. So right, right. it's, 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 it's a crazy cycle to look at, but I think I've always looked at investment in conservation as a literal investment in future customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, it's a great point. And, uh, I, I once was in a conversation with a guy who, who talked about how there's, uh, and he's been in the industry for a long time. Um, he's actually a fellow Iowan here. Um, but, uh, he, uh, talked about how there's some companies that don't do that. And he talked about the opposite side of that. It's like, how short sighted is that, uh, not invest in your own business's future because mm-hmm. your whole everything that you do depends on there being a place for people to participate in these yeah. activities and so if you're not if you're not protecting them you know we always uh I, well i shouldn't say we i uh, always joke about how man i hear all the time from people that own uh you know farmland and have totally bought into the fence row to fence row farming practices now like, yeah we used to have so many pheasants around here i don't know where those pheasants went they're all yeah. gone you know dnr you know it's like uh do they have a place to live would you be living on your farm if you didn't have a house there to live you know it's like yeah. it's that simple you know you gotta you gotta invest in the long-term thing to have what you want yeah and doug duran says a really good piece of it he says that it is not it is um, financial viability it's not profit max uh maximization and maximizing i don't know anybody don't know, know that word the, <laughs> but, the only thing i can think of is maximilian but that's yeah <laughs> so, no that's a plan <laughs> man <laughs> no so and uh and i think when um actually i was just talking with a gentleman today he went into manufacturing he made a bunch of money doing it and and um, we were talking about conservation. I was like, why do you care about conservation? He said, I, I got to the end of where my dreams were. I'm 30 years old, and it's not what I wanted. Money, you know. You, I mean, the reason people want money, whether they know it or not, is they want experience. They want um, they, <laughs> they want to spend it on the things they like doing. But yeah, they have no it, time to when do it. you could just like go, go outside, you know, and, and do the same <laughs> things. And and, uh, and and I get it. There's like a lot of there's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of these um, things that come with money. But uh, when we can see past the value, as Kent says, when you can see past the value of the dollar, um, and you can and you can see more value in experience and relationship and connection with people around you and to the land, yeah. uh, the dollar becomes not nothing more than the ability to put food in your mouth, you know, and and mm-hmm. doesn't become your life's work. And that's something that is really cool 
about a lot of uh, farmers and hunters and, and people who who are farming, uh, but they said, no, I'm going to set aside a bunch of these acres. I'm going to not yep. make as much money as I could. I mean, they're not probably not getting a loss doing CRP or something of the sort, but they're not making as much money as they could. And they say, I'm going to give back to something and, and uh, or even something as simple as cover crops. Those farmers are saying, I want my kids to have, uh, have soil to farm on. And so we're going to, we're going to, you know, it might cost us a few extra dollars an acre, um, for a few years, but, uh, we find that investment worth it. And I feel similarly as farmers are doing that companies such as ourselves, um, we, we kind of, when Kent first came on board, we kind of sat down and said, okay, how can we do this? And, um, we would meet once a week, even before he officially started. And we decided podcast was the best way to do it because education being the key to conservation, um, we, we decided, Hey, we're going to take, uh, we're going to take time. Uh, we're going to take resources, you know, money, um, our own personal time. And we're going to work on educating the world on this strange thing called conservation or natives or, you know, the fauna and flora that used to be here. And, uh, while that is probably a good business decision for our future, it's also, you know, like a good human decision for the future of humanity. <laughs> yeah, I, have, I have kids. I right. want them to be able to live here on this planet. Yeah. For sure. That's so uh, I don't know if you guys follow that guy. His name Alex Homsey or something. He's like a financial. Um, his whole thing is uh, acquiring businesses or not acquiring, but helping businesses go from like three million to ten million. Like oh, he's sure, like yeah. helps companies grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, I just watched a real. You know, a, it was an Instagram reel, and he was talking about success. And so it, it just made me think of it when you were talking about like farmers that are setting aside acres, you know, doing things that it's protecting it for future generations. So Mm. when you look at success, success is not winning in the moment. Success is doing it for the rest of your life. Or, Mm. you know, so it's like he, he took, he took the examples. He was like getting in shape, like getting in shape is not winning. Being in shape for the rest of your life is the win. It's continually Mm. exercising. So you're in shape for the rest of your life. Yeah. So when you look at like conservation, habitat, farming practices, winning isn't maximizing profit. Winning is making sure that your kids have somewhere to farm. Yep. It's making sure your kids have somewhere to hunt. It's it's doing the things that are necessary to be able to protect things for future generations, um, which wow. I think is a different mindset, right? It makes yeah, you it makes you look at is. things way longer term than just like, oh, I can make an extra 15, 20% this year if I farm that extra 60 acres um, or whatever. So I thought that was a very cool the way to look at it. And like, it made me think about like what I've been doing, you know, in photography, conservation, all of those things. Like, how do I make that a longer lasting effect? What are the things that I need to do to continue to do the things that I love, but then protect it for everybody else? I think, I don't know, just made me. I just wrote that down in in my phone because I didn't want to forget it. The like redefining success that we, we would figure out what, what real success is for us. That is, that is awesome. And I think, I think when people start to look at it when they start to dig deep, when they start to understand a little bit more about themselves and about the world that they live in and the people around them, they would agree with you. They would say, yeah, success is a uh, longevity of prosperity and blessing and not just like one peak moment, you know, of success. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. And I mean, you boil it down to why is it that a lot of those people have hung on to, let's go with the example of farming. You know, that's not, an easy thing for people to hang on to. Um, you know, the, there's, 
there's there's not a ton of profit to be made in agriculture for the farmer. Um, there are for other companies, but uh, not not the farmer himself. So it's right. it's a it's a passion based career, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if you like take what you just said and and say, you know, obviously you care a lot about this. There's a good chance if you're raising your kids anyway, how in shaping them how you are, they're probably going to really care about this too. So how are you going to set them up to be able to live out their dream just as you were able to live out yours? You know, it's, it's, it's really kind of boils down to that simple, you know, into those simple of terms. And the same thing can be said, like, like what you're talking about with hunting and fishing, you know, if you're really passionate about hunting and you own a property or you, maybe you hunt exclusively on public land, well, then you better be taking care of that so that those that come after you that you care about can, can enjoy it as well. Uh, beautifully said. <clears throat> so the photography side of things, how did, mm-hmm. did, did you just get into that as like a kid? Like, were you one of those people who, you know, you got your, I imagine we're probably similar, pretty similar age. Sam. I'm like 10 years older than Nick here, but I know I look half his age though, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I think my first camera that I got was a hand-me-down from my grandparents. It was one of those old uh, Vivitar. Uh, it was it had the 110 film, I think it's what they call it. It was like the little plastic bar film, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And it, just, yep. it was like a thing that just slipped right in there. And uh, So do you have like that story where you got your first little cheap camera and then you just naturally had a talent for it and you just grew and grew and took classes on it in high school, that kind of thing? I- Kind of. Um, so mine was a little bit different. I always was interested in it growing up. So like there was an old, found an old VHS tape of like me and somebody's rollerblading, you know, and my oh, parents nice. had like the over the shoulder VHS camera. <laughs> wow. Definitely similar yeah. age to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Rollerblades yeah. so, yeah. and shoulder cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, uh, but, but like in on the video, so like I was filming it first, so you can't see me. So it's like, I think my sister was there and my buddy Kurt, you know, it's like, I remember it like watching the video again, but uh, so I'm filming, you know, them do whatever tricks off a ramp or, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> yep, yep. So then, but then, uh, my sister, she's younger than me. She was like, Hey, I'll film, you know? So then, but I, but you can hear me standing behind her directing her like different shots and stuff. I was like, Oh, film it from here, film it from here, you know, like, and so growing up, I always had an interest in, in video mostly, you know, I, I didn't sure. get into photography until after I had done the video thing and I always had these dreams of filming a hunting show and doing, you know, like that was, you know, you kind of always dream of that as a kid growing up hunting and, and, uh, but mostly did snowboarding, wakeboarding, rollerblading videos with my buddies, you know, graduated to a little Sony or Canon handy cam, you know, like with the one hour tapes. And, and then, um, in college I had a little point and shoot camera that I never used. Um, but my parents had to deal with us, um, when it came to alcohol and, um, my they made a deal said if you don't drink till you're 21 you can pick out any shotgun you want wow yeah and so you know within within reason that's a good little parenting tip there yeah and it 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 was great so i had an older brother josh obviously and he made it to 21 and he picked out a beretta al391 technies edition so it was like at the time it was like a 1600 shotgun or whatever and uh my dad went, bought it. And he's like, yep. Easiest check I've ever written. You know, it's wow. like, like just, you know, it kept my kids That's out of, kept, dad. you know, my kid out of trouble. And, and, uh, so me being weird, 
um, I <laughs> told my dad that I didn't want a shotgun. I wanted a professional video camera because I was really interested in furthering that, you know, pursuit. Sure. And so I actually saved up money for a couple of years leading up to my 21st birthday. And then we split one. So I spent 1600, he spent 1600 and I got a Canon XH A1S like professional video camera. It was still a tape at the time, but it was wow. full HD, you know, you know, wow, you know, 1080 yeah, yeah. <laughs> like HD video <laughs> yeah. camera. Yeah. Uh, but I was still in college. So I had, I had no idea how to run a professional video camera. So I used it for the first couple of weeks that I had it. And then it basically sat on the shelf in my college closet for, you know, the remainder of college, use it every once in a while. Yeah. Um, but it, I had got into archery hunting and I got an intern, ended up long story short, I got an internship with Midwest whitetail by uh, cold calling, cold emailing every contact I could possibly find in the hunting industry. Like, I meant to bring I, this up that I'm so glad you said that. So you're from our neck of the woods then if you were down there, you were, were you down yep. in Albia? I was. Yep. So I, that's where I did my, oh my internship. Goodness, man. You're, you're like, that's, that's like 50, 20, I, 20 I, miles from I us. live in Knoxville. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. 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 So yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. To, I forgot to ask, yep. but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, yeah. Sorry. You, yeah. You, no, no, no. That's fine. I, uh, but I, I just, I was all fired up my, my first year of archery hunting. I had killed a couple deer. I was just, you know, like through the roof adrenaline was just, you yeah. know, running and I was, you know, like, okay, now maybe I could do this hunting show thing. I've got the camera I've got, you know, and I was graduating and I was like, it's all, all perfect timing. <laughs> so, but I got an internship. Um, and that's what led me to, to Southern Iowa and the career in the hunting industry. That's where it mm -hmm. started. Um, and then did video for a few years and then that led to photography and then really dove into the photography side. Um, just because that's what was, that's who was hiring. You know, I, right, I, yeah. I, apparently I had a, the right eye for it and I wasn't a weirdo in hunting camp. So people wanted were willing to hang out with me <laughs> <laughs> and I kept getting hired. I kept saying yes. So no, that's, yep. that's really cool how that all merged together. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I forgot I forgot that connection. So but. you got to skip all the like family photo uh, uh, stations <laughs> so you didn't have to go through all that to make your career in photography. Man, no, I've guy. never I've never shot a wedding. I've never shot portraits. I've never shot senior photos. I've ne none Dude, of that. <laughs> I've never seen someone and, and they were amazing. So I'm not saying this as a bad thing about them. I've never seen someone more dead in the eyes than the lady who is shooting our family. My little sister is screaming her face off <laughs> and the lady's just smiling. Like, like, why am I here? Like what wrong turn did I take in life? <laughs> so that is really yep. cool. You jumped right into the hunting photography, man. Do you know, um, Chris Helzer, the, <laughs> the prairie ecologist on Instagram, he's really, okay. he's a really, really good photographer and is, uh, the natural state biologist for Nebraska or Kansas, I believe one of the okay. two. Nebraska. He's Nebraska. Nebraska. We, we may have crossed paths before just, you know, through events yeah. and that type of thing. He's just a cool guy and an incredible photographer. So didn't know if yeah. you guys had, had seen his stuff, but yeah. yeah, I, I honestly think that striking photography has, has really brought in, uh, the conservation message out of kind of the back room conversation up to more, you know, the, the main event that people are talking about because they, they are faced with that beauty. I mean, you can be living in on, you know, Manhattan Island and uh, go on Instagram and see a striking natural setting, you know, shot very well with a, with a nice camera, you know, maybe even, uh, 
with a good filter on it or something like that that just grabs you and and mm -hmm. stirs up those natural emotions that are connected to people interacting with nature and so i think uh photography is has been a huge part of bringing that you know bringing that I don't know how to say it, maybe that social media presence and, and then, you know, the water cooler conversation, uh, conservation has entered both of those things and, and, you know, the forefront of those conversations. So I think, uh, I think photography has been a huge help. To that. And then yeah. of course, in the hunting world too, you know, they're really, in my opinion, there really isn't, I think it's because the hunting, you know, the hunting industry, we talked about this a little bit ago or earlier in this conversation, um, has really grown to, you know, be a pretty powerful part of the American economy, but it's been something that's been really building. I mean, it's probably been building ever since, like you were saying, the first hunting uh, show came on TV, but uh, it's really been growing probably over the last 10 years and even maybe more specifically the last five years. And I think one of those ways that that the hunting industry has kind of been punching out of its weight class a little bit as far as the economy goes is by leveraging well done productions. I mean, almost every big uh, name in the hunting world has some, you know, three or four very well shot um, uh, films on YouTube that they release. And I think that that has been a huge part of growing the hunting community and, and, to some extent, the fishing community as well, but I, I think the hunting community especially. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think it's been trickle down, right? Um, so we, you know, the hunting industry wasn't the first ones to do it. You know, it all started in outdoor recreation. So it was the the ski films. It was the beautifully mm. shot mountain climbing stuff. It all came from right, yeah. these big uh, ski, hike, climb. Did North Face like, used to do a lot of that? North Face used to do a bunch. Okay. Patagonia did a bunch, you know, and then that trickled down into the fly fishing world, you know? So it was mm -hmm. like, it was like, it, it was weird. It was, it was fun to watch the progression. Cause it was, it was definitely like hike hunt or not hike hunt, but hike climb, all that stuff trickled down to fly fishing, which is, if you think about it, it's a very beautiful sport, but it's a weird thing to turn into like an action film. Right. Yeah, <laughs> a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I love fly fishing, <laughs> but it always, it always, it always seemed like it was trying too hard to be like an epic climbing film. Like, you know, like right, to me yeah, yeah. and, 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 and definitely that has trickled into the hunting industry. There's people that take it like, in my opinion, way too seriously, but sure. what it has done is it has created, it has told a very beautiful story of mm -hmm. hunting and fishing. Yeah. And it has allowed people who are non hunters and fishermen, fisherwomen, non people that aren't in the sport directly, that 80% in the middle middle who are like, they don't have like an opinion one way or another right, on right. hunting and fishing. Yeah. They get to see glimpses of this beautiful activity through all of this high-end production. Now, obviously yeah. there's a different side of that too. I mean, there's real bad stuff on, on social media, but like <laughs> I try to, when I, I try to educate people on, if you are posting about hunting and fishing, we need to continually post in the most positive light possible. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's, telling the story of spending time with family and friends. It's telling the story of uh, turning that thing that you shot or caught into a meal for people that you care about. It's, it's spending time in the woods and on the plains and in the, on the water. So you connect with not only nature, but yourself and those around you. It's, it's, 
it's continually trying to show this in the most positive way possible because if you don't it is very easy to have it look negative from the outside looking in like if you see some of these posts that people are sharing it's like can you imagine somebody who's never been part of hunting at all like watching this it's like you know if you're part of it you like you you've seen stuff happen and whatever but like and you know how things go down sometimes but it's like don't share that don't right, talk right, about yeah that, that is you know? fascinating yeah if, you, if they didn't hate it then they do now thanks man yeah. right yeah yeah and and it's so easy to like get a response on social media with something negative so i imagine it is very tempting uh um, oh yeah but that is really cool because when i think of hunting on social media i think of you know dozens if not hundreds of my facebook friends who have shot a deer or a turkey or pheasants and then they they put out their their winnings for the day you know or maybe they hold up the buck's head you know and and so that's what i'm thinking um right but then yeah I, I i can think of like a couple reels i've seen that like looks like a nightmare yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. this is just not helping anybody oh it's it's a good point and what it does is it, it keeps you from being a lazy you know like haphazard poster which is good. Like there shouldn't be lazy haphazard posters are responsible for 97% of the shouting on Facebook. You know, right. somebody doesn't, the they don't put in the warriors. They don't put in the yeah. effort to, to like really put forth a well thought product, you know? And so, yep. yeah, that's, that's, yep. that's a good point. Well, you know, a lot of people listening to this, they probably, and I thought about asking this question, but we've had a couple other uh, people in the hunting community explain why hunting is an important part of conservation here in, in America. And we've talked about the North American model. Um, we recently talked with uh, Doug Duran, uh, and he uh, gave some really interesting thoughts on ways he would like to see the model uh, address a few blind spots, which I thought, hey, that's awesome that you're bringing that up because, I mean, let's be honest, Sam, Dick's probably not quite as in on, on this side of that conversation, but a lot of times, you know, we can be guilty of, you know, we'll just name something. We'll be like, yeah, the North American model hunting is a part of that moving on, you know, or right. even Robertson, man, you know, and, and it's like, okay, can we look at these things and see how can they be made better? You know? And, and so I think it's important to have that conversation sometimes too, but I think one that people probably, so they, if they've been listening to this podcast long enough, if you haven't, go back, listen to our episode with uh, Ryan Callahan or Doug Duran or um, uh, even anything I've been on. I've tried to talk about how hunting is an important part of that. But what we really want to focus on here with with um, with Sam is this idea of public land. And what's been interesting is Nick and I have had conversations about the importance of public land. He's like, dude, I just I don't I don't really. You know, like I see the conservation side of it. Yeah, that's important. I see it's great that people can go hunt. Why is that such an important thing? Not to pick on you, Nick. No, but I, I like the idea of public land. But uh, I, what we were, what the main conversation I can remember is I asked Ken. It's like you, you're given a hundred million dollars. What do you do with it? He was like, Oh, I do this or that with my family. I donate a little bit of this, and then I buy thousands of acres and put it into public land. Uh, and um, yeah, so if you have millions of dollars out there, I'm your guy. Go ahead, send send, send that check to Hoxie. I'll, I'll put it back in the public Look, land you for you. Do one of one of two one of two things. You can either buy some teas 
from <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah. from yeah, Steve. That's right. or uh, or you can uh, just donate it to Kent um, and he promises I guess you you've got his word from this podcast that he will not uh, right. blow it on candy cigarettes like he normally does <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and so I that was the first time that I was like oh like someone is really passionate about public land why why are we passionate about public land Is that where I answer? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you, get a, you get to tackle this this uh, elephant here. <laughs> no, so public land in the United States is different from almost anywhere in the world. So it's it's it is a privilege that we get to even spend time on places that you can just go walk onto, whether that be going for a hike or climbing or biking or camping or you know hunting or fishing. It is a it's it's a space for everyone and. Anyone who lives in the country and pays taxes quite literally owns that land because it is held in public trust. And so the the reason it's so important is because there's not that many places left on the planet that are that can be or will be truly wild. Hmm. And not all public land is real wild. But if we can protect these places from being developed, from simply being another place that you can drive by, but not look and feel and touch and go on, I think we lose a little bit of the spirit of the United States without all of that ground to go explore on. Yeah. And from a conservation standpoint, it's important because I think it allows a little bit of experimentation, right? You have this multi-use land that you need to figure out what things you can do on it, but still increase the habitat, increase, you know, wildlife herds, protect the species, whether that be, you know, limiting some public land some years or limiting tag allocation or, you know, it's, it's really a giant test of what we can do with the land. And then a lot of the work is done on private land, obviously, but the main reason it's so important is because of the funding dollars, right? So if, if you have more public land, if you have more opportunity and places for people to go spend time and hunt and fish, the more people that will get into it, the more dollars that get funded into these programs that protect the places that we're spending the time on. So right, it's right. a, it's just a circle. It's, you know, it's uh, the Lion King circle of life. So you have, you know, you have people <laughs> yep. that are going to go spend time on the land. They're going to buy tags. They're going to buy guns. They're going to buy fishing equipment. They're going to, they're going to spend money at banquets. They're going to become members of the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. They're going to do all of these things once they get involved in these activities. And the more places that we have for people to go do these things, the more people will have be part of that community. And I think that's really the end of it. For I mean, for me, that's why it's so important. Like the opportunities that I've been given because of public land, I it would it, it hits me right in the gut if I think that in the future, those opportunities wouldn't be available for the next person that wants to go do those things. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very well said. Uh, do you feel satisfied now, Nick? Is that, a, is that a good answer? Yeah, yeah. I, Kent just wasn't doing the job the other day. So we, that's actually why we scheduled this. We wanted to ask that one question. He so. asked me before we were eating lunch, and I had uh, Oreo fluff on my mind. Yeah. No, I, I think because there's a lot of yelling the land of the free, which is a wonderful thing. I don't I want to take away from that. Yeah, um, you better not. This yeah, podcast no, no, just no, died. No. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I definitely don't want to take away from that. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Um, but so when you say a word like public land, just the, the connotation that comes with it is like land that is taken away from the people, which when you talk about yeah, it being managed, point. You, you know, so now that's different than like, 
that's just the connotation that comes to mind immediately. Um, you think of like government land, but really right. what it is, is it's Louisiana before people went and, and, yeah. you know, went and explored it. it. It's just, you know, land that they're kind of letting be or managing minimally. And uh, that I think almost anyone who listens to our podcast and, and millions of others uh, can get behind, including myself. And, and um, what's really cool about public land is its attempt to preserve Right. And it's mm-hmm. attempt for for every person in America to spend a few pennies out of their taxes preserving. And that, that is a really big deal. Yeah. 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 That's that's a, that's a good point, Nick. And, and I think, again, you know, kind of like I was talking about with the, uh, you know, in the hunting circles, we can throw around these terms and not really fully explain them, not knowing if people from the outside truly understand them or not that's a good point about the public land thing you know i see your point where if people just view it as government land that's land that's been gobbled up by the government but, but it's the opposite yeah you know it's it's gov- or it's land that is essentially paid for by everyone that supports the government with their tax money so that everyone in our country can access those acres and ju- i like that analogy that you gave honestly you know like uh just the old days of settling our country when people would set out and and there was no like oh i'm trespassing right now yeah. you know and and maybe <laughs> there should have been some of that you know obviously the way we handled uh things with uh, uh the people who were here before us the indigenous peoples um we didn't handle that well but um I, to the point of like just having a place where you can go and hunt go and fish go and go and uh you know, do all sorts of other things that you need space to do. Yeah, that's the that's the spirit that I think exists that should exist when people think of public land. But so, uh, Sam, as a conservationist, as a public land advocate, if uh, um, you could, if you could see one or two things, we'll, we'll let you, allow you up to two. I'm sure you got like 50 things, but like one or two major things happen. Um, between now and retirement age, Sam Soholt, what things would you like to see? I mean, it could be something as simple as just more access or, um, you know, better funding for X, Y, and Z, whatever. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think one of the main ones that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, um, so it's hard to expand state and federal lands just because of the bureaucracy like just that all that goes into that purchasing land to turn over to the public is a hard thing uh but what is what is expanding in a lot of states is access to private land for the public so you know things like walk-in area things like the plots program in north dakota uh the block management program in montana those types of things i think is probably the next frontier that i would like to see explored more you know whether that be specific funds from non-resident licenses that always Mm -hmm. go into a pot to increase access, you know, community access funds, that type of thing that's going to bring people into the States, um, you know, going to allow people to travel and spend money in all those places and, and recreate more kind of lowering that hurdle of, of access. So uh, certainly more access um, would be good because that's definitely one of the biggest barriers to entry uh, for anybody who's getting into it. And even people who have been in it for a long time, that'd be the, the one thing that I'm, probably most passionate about is just more and continued access yeah 
Yeah, I agree. It would be uh, so awesome to see a lot of these states. So, I mean, when you go out west, there is quite a bit of access, you know. Um, if you're, if you were, let's say you had, you know, a week to, to go hunting or fishing out West and things weren't working out for your original plan on public ground, you wouldn't have to drive far to find another piece to hop on. But, uh, here in the Midwest, uh, especially in Iowa, I believe we rank second to last or third to last in the amount of public, uh, land. Imagine if states like that could, um, you know, like Iowa or Kansas or Nebraska or whoever else is down there at the bottom of the list with us. If all those states could start <clears throat> seeing, you know, a doubling or tripling within the next 50 years of the so amount three of acres. Three, <laughs> yeah, three acres. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we'll take it. But, uh, you know, if you could you start. Know, stuff, yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that is happening. You know, you have the build a wildlife area campaigns from Pheasants Forever. And I think just yeah. if we continue to focus more effort on talking about you know, collaborating with landowners rather that like there's been this weird division since the public land talk started, you know, like it's been talked about forever, but really in 2016, it became kind of this division between people who hunt public land and people who hunt private land, which is, I think, one of the dumbest things that's happened. Yeah, yeah. And it, sh it needs to be, it needs to continue to be a bigger collaboration between not only people who hunt both of those places, but the the landowners of the private land and people who only have access to spend time on public land. If we can bring those forces together, we can do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, yeah. But if we don't, it's going to be a struggle for everybody. Yeah. 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 Very well said. I, I was, I don't know, some podcast, I can't remember, but the, they were talking about um, how uh, they were talking about like family groups, like large family groups, like the grandpa and then, you know, having 20 grandkids and stuff like that. And kind of the, the relationships that they have. And they said if the grandma and grandpa, it was a really weird thing, if the grandma and grandpa of this large family group had lived lifestyle with their hands open, so money and resources and relationship come in and out very easily, they weren't closed-fisted, they weren't closed in, mm -hmm. their kids and grandkids were like, like many times more likely to have good relationship with each other, like cousins being close to each other and stuff like that, oh. as opposed to grandparents who you know, live their whole life with their, their right. hands clenched, holding on to things. And I thought that was a perfect picture for just society in general. But right now we're like, we're talking about land and access and, and with Doug Durham, we were talking about sharing the land last week, the, um, just, just having our hands a little more open. Obviously there's, there's restrictions. There's not everything can be free willy nilly, but, uh, but just having a little more open handedness and a little more, uh, uh, sharing, uh, I think would go a long ways in improving, you know, our society and, and just our own personal well-beings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was, man, that was really good, Nick. Oh, thanks. that was a good good analogy. <laughs> there. I've never heard public land put in that context, but that's that's a really good analogy. I like that a lot. Well, uh, Sam, as we uh, wrap this one up, we're, we're approaching the one hour mark here. I know you're a busy guy, uh, but uh, what's on the docket for the uh, public lands van? Uh, the van that's better than Mr. T's van. That's Coming a good question. The rest of uh, um, 2024, where are you going? Yeah, I don't have anything big on the docket yet that I can talk about with the van. But Ooh, we, that's fun. But, yeah. <laughs> but when this, I don't know when this podcast will come out. Um, uh, but we two or three weeks probably. Okay. Well, then we'll be we'll be rolling on it. Um, we have a project that is coming out um, on Thursday, the 13th. 
And if you go to publiclandtees.com, you can pick up a brand new design uh, spring turkey edition t-shirt. Awesome. Uh, it's a, it is a turkey that is hammering on the roost. And on the bottom branch, it says hashtag for the bird. And it's part of oh, a wow. big, yeah, it's part of a big turkey tour that um, Ben O'Brien and I are doing for the roost podcast. But in addition to that, if you buy the shirt, you get one of uh, Colonel Tom Kelly's 50th edition of the 10th Legion book, which is basically like a turkey hunting Bible. It was written oh, in 1973. Cool. It's a super cool read. Um, and he's been in the turkey space for um, you know a long, long time. So you get sure. the book that comes with a coin, a commemorative point coin with a picture of Tom Kelly on it, and then a, a lucky turkey feather for hunting this spring. And then you nice. also get an NWTF membership um, at the same time. So it's 87.50, but uh, we're doing a limited run of a hundred of them. And so we'll uh, wow. kick those out. Yeah. Kick those out there and raise a bunch of money for NWTF and uh, for Turkey conservation. Yeah. That very, is amazing. Very, it, very cool. Just not three hours ago, Kent and I were talking. He was like, we need to get a Turkey guy on here. We need, we need to start talking about some Turkey, you know, cause just their decline in, uh, uh, yep. in numbers. And, and um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll need to do that. That's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, Sam, we really appreciate you coming on for this episode. Uh, how can people uh, track you down? What's the best way for people to find? Yeah, us? just follow along. Yeah, everything this spring um, going forward is probably going to be, I'm going to be posted on the Public Land Tees pages. So that's on Facebook and, and Instagram mainly. A little bit of YouTube stuff on the Soul Holt Brothers YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, just at Public Land Tees on Instagram. If you want to follow me personally, it's at Sam Soulholt um yeah instagram mostly a little bit of facebook but mostly mostly instagram some tiktok i haven't dove into that hard enough yet but Dude, yeah. uh, it's, a big, it's a big old hole it's, it's it deep, is man. yeah it's never ending but yeah you can, it's pretty pretty easy to find the stuff out there just search yeah. my name and public land tees and you'll find us and I, i'm pretty picky about i actually i follow less than 200 people on my instagram my personal instagram and i follow sam because every single post he has I yeah, really Nick doesn't even follow me, Sam. So no, that shows, that, that, shows <laughs> so, that makes me I'm super proud. That's yeah, right, yeah no, no, I, I want everything when I'm scrolling on Instagram, I want every single post to be awesome. If I'm gonna go search, I'll go to Facebook if I need to like see what you're up to, but I want everything yep. to be pretty when I'm scrolling on Instagram and and yep. Sam does a really good job. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you, Sam. Thank you so much for all that you've done on behalf of our public land access here in our great country. And uh, um, really, as you said, just a great privilege that we get to enjoy here. And so just very thankful for your work there. And uh, also uh, on raising awareness for conservation. Um, I have one of the uh, uh, pollinator math shirts that a friend of mine uh, got for me. And, and uh, um, I love it. It's, it's awesome. It, 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 opens up conversations when people see that and uh, uh, tells a true story as to if we want some of these things to improve, we got to, uh, we got to put our money where our mouth is. We got to see the value beyond the dollar. We got to do everything that we talked about on this, on this uh, episode of the podcast. Um, if you're listening in, please remember to follow along with Sam. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, as he said. You can also find Hoxie Native Seeds on there. You can follow Nick as well, but he probably won't follow you back. Nope. Uh, but <laughs> Unless he got great photography. <laughs> but, uh, no, we, uh, uh, we really appreciate you tuning in each and every week, each and every episode. Make sure you catch those Coffee Time Wednesday episodes to talk about all sorts of current events in the conservation space. Also, if you're in need of seed or a native seed drill, uh, you can uh, contact us through our website, 
our websites, either the prairiefarm.com or hoxynativeseeds.com, and you get to talk to Nick and hear all about that. But just as uh, Sam has showed us today, though, conservation happens one mind at a time. Thank you.